Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. In this episode, we spoke with Chris Tate. Chris is an author, trading mentor, co-founder of both the trading game and talking trading as well. With a penchant for applying the scientific method to most elements of life, Chris, alongside with his co-founder Louise, is one of the longest standing members, sorry, mentors rather, in the trading business, weathering all the fads that have passed through the industry to date. This was a very fascinating episode where we spoke a lot about the usefulness of the scientific method, including averages, statistics, and people, technical analysis, simplicity of complexity, principles applied to screen opportunities, delaying gratification, how he got into trading, what he's learned from Louise, and of course, coaching observations as well. If you like the episode, do leave a rating on your podcast app. Share with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram story tagging at GoMarkets. Show notes and all previous guests are at GoMarkets.com slash podcast. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Chris Tate. Chris, seems like we finally got there. We're live. How are you? We, we did finally, despite the, the best intentions of technology to get in the bloody way. I know. It's funny, as we were saying on... Off, off air. It's funny when in this era you have all of these technological breakthroughs and yet we still struggle to get a simple international or sometimes even uh, stateside call set up properly and we can hear each other correctly. It's, uh, it's funny that way. You should try and see, see me fire something at the printer, which is three away sometimes. <laughs> Don't worry, I know. I know we've got the same one here. Um, tell me, flying buttress options spreads, how are they looking these days? Oh, dear God, yes. <laughs> uh, someone's been telling stories out of school, haven't they? <laughs> someone's been telling me that, uh, porky pies. Yes. Yeah, that, that was my way of just having a little bit of fun when I lectured to overly serious people at the ASX and SFE. Yeah. And intriguingly, it was one of the few things they wrote down. You're kidding. No, I, look, I had... I used to have a lot of fun with stockbrokers because they're overly serious salespeople. And I was giving a, a talk once at the SFE on uh, distribution of returns. Okay. And so I was trying to illustrate a point. And so to illustrate the point, I was talking about lotteries. And I said, look, if you want to uh, have a better chance of winning a first division, 
that is, you know, marginally above zero, or you want to participate in a higher price pool when you do win, pick numbers above 30. And they went, why? And I said, people pick their birthdays. They always pick under 30 or 31. Hmm. That was the thing they wrote down for the damn lecture. Uh, <laughs> despite all the other clever things I said, and they wrote down, he said pick numbers above 30 and 31 if I want to win Tats Lotto. Oh, dear God. That, that, but that is an interesting observation. Because, see, I was reading – last week I've been reading – I was just doing my notes on it last night – The Art of Thinking Clearly. And there's a cognitive bias where – it's not su- survivorship bias. It's, it's a bias where uh, – I think it's the law of averages or maybe it's the law of small numbers. But you pull, yes. you pull in, let's say, a group of people, a data set, and a lot of the times, you know, all it can attribute to is what – the standard behavior is so what most people do or it includes that plus the outliers and so you never really get a clear picture of what's actually happening like for example you know it might look at the average wealth of people in seattle washington but that average wealth also includes bill gates and uh uh, jeff bezos yeah and it's it's a little bit like uh when i was in la a few years ago, which is an immensely depressing city, yeah. I was I was always struck by the fact that everyone we ran into was either working on a script or producing a screenplay or they were auditioning for something. So I looked up the average earnings of uh, actors in the US and they actually keep this statistic. It took a little bit of finding, but I found it. And it said that the average yearly earnings is about $10,000. Mm. All the members of Actors' Equity. But the problem with that figure is that that is even dragged to the high side by people like Hugh Jackman, uh, Robert Downey Jr., who might get, you know, upwards of $50 million payoff for a film. Mm. So once, once you drag in an outlier, all of a sudden what seems average is no longer really average. And I... I find averages fascinating because I'm always reminded of a statistics lecture I had who always had this joke where he said, did you hear about the mathematician who drowned in the river that had an average depth of four feet? <laughs> and most people didn't get it and people would go, well, it's only four feet. No, but that's the average. That means that it could be, it could be 100 feet deep in places. Yeah. Statistics and people are a fascinating sort of observation. Yeah. There's so many cognitive biases like that that I find absolutely fascinating and, and is obviously super practical in the area that you're in now. And it's got me thinking about, you know, your original background, you were a bouncer at one point, but also you studied microbiology and immunobiology at Manash. Yes, I did. I guess I'm curious then, this, uh, this idea that you're able to think in statistical groups as opposed to, you know, the, the nice picture that the people often see, do you think that came before you, you know, began your studies in that area or is something that you'd always sort of innately had? No, look, having, I think having a non-finance slash science academic background is both a help and a hindrance mm-hmm. because it actually gives you how to think about data, and it, it, it teaches you about things such as statistical significance. Whether something is actually real 
or it's just a fluke. And in my observations of people, one of the things there that intrigues me is that people take meaning from coincidence and they don't actually see that it is coincidence, that it is a series of random events jammed together. Mm. Case in point, when Apple brought out the iPod, iPods have a shuffle function, as do all now modern MP3 players, where you just hit the shuffle button and it will pick tracks randomly. People were complaining that it would play the same track again without actually realising that's how randomness works. Um, Randomness works in ways that confuse most people. Uh, People are always amazed that somebody might win the lottery twice. But if you get enough people doing the same thing often enough, what seems to be impossible becomes inevitable. Mm. Case in point, Louise's grandfather was struck by lightning twice. Really? You can't get much luckier than that. (laughs) So the notion of people and statistics has always fascinated me. And when the basis of your working life is experimental in nature, you need to actually understand what is a random occurrence from what is a true occurrence from what is just an artefact within the data to actually something that is real within the data. And this is the thing I find intriguing about technical analysis is that for a lot of technical analysis, let's say technical analysis is a very, very broad church. Mm. ranges from very, very simple things like I do, which is simply I'm a trend follower. Uh, I acknowledge I have no predictive capacity whatsoever. I don't even know what I'm going to do this afternoon let alone what the market will be doing next year. And it ranges all the way out to the lunatics who believe they can predict the future using sunspots. And now, admittedly, there are all sorts of different issues probably going on inside their head. But at the core of it is a misunderstanding, not only of how the world works, but of how statistics work, where someone might go, well, I put on my lucky socks, And having put on my lucky socks, I spotted gold at $900 and it's now at $1,500. So therefore, by definition, it's my lucky socks. (laughs) Not understanding that these are coincidental events. One has no bearing on the other. But the way humans view the world and the way we see life is that we assume that our actions on a global scale have some degree of import and they don't. One of the hardest things I find to convince new traders is that the market will go in the direction it wants to go, whether you're on board or not. What you think, feel, say, your story has no no bearing on the market at all. Mm. Humans are terribly poor statisticians, but we're wonderful storytellers. Yeah, and we can always see, you know, this. We can always see the story element. That's why when you're in the media business, it's it's what's the story behind. Uh, this situation. I mean, you can show a human that 10,000 water birds died in the Gulf of Mexico on paper. You can just show them that number and they'll just glance over it. But the moment you show, show them a water bird covered in oil, they'll be, they'll yes. be absolutely gobsmacked. That, the, you mentioned yeah. something before about human and this, I learned this very, very early on. I remember I was at the end, last days of of uni, but I'd been getting into oil futures trading and I had some good luck, but then I got completely wiped out. 
And it was at that moment that I realized that I have no idea what I was doing. And so I started reading from that point. It was through that process I found, uh, you know, the likes of Warren Buff- the Warren Buffetts of the world. And he often speaks about yes. this analogy with, uh, you know, the in sort of efficient market theory world, you can get, um, you know, you can get a town of apes and all of a sudden they just start flipping coins or whatever. And then at the very end, you've got these certain apes that for whatever reason, they're the ones that are still left over after picking heads and tails correctly for 100 tosses. And then all of a sudden yes. the media is like, well, what do they drink? What do they eat? Uh, yes. What are they reading? What are they- how do they? Yes. How do they? You know, how do they operate when they're flipping their coins? And I guess that's what modern uh, modern market media is is like today. And so it has me thinking. If if you're ultra aware of that, you know, B- Buffett always spoke about um, value as being the the key way to get away from this trend look of not trend look of the world, but you know, looking at things by averages. Uh, yes. So, how do you think about that? You know, and particularly using something like technical analysis. Part part of what I do, part of my routine, is to insulate myself from noise. One of the when, if I cast my mind back to when I first started trading, mm. way, 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 way back, sometime last century, most markets were denied to us. I could trade the ASX. And back when I started trading, the exchanges were still separate entities. There was a Melbourne Stock Exchange and a Sydney Stock Exchange. Hmm. And so we were, they were in the process of going through the true amalgamation, but they were still separate entities. And so much of what we take for granted today was completely uh, opaque to us. The best I could do was when we started derivatives trading was start, start to trade options. You now have the opposite problem in that uh, I'm sitting here in my house in suburban Melbourne and I can pick up my phone, wander around the house, go outside, and should should the whim take me, I can buy stocks in Finland. <laughs> this, this presents an enormous problem because humans have difficulty with attention span as it is, but we also have trouble managing information. We are a limited bit input machine and we become overwhelmed quite quickly. And so part of my routine has always been to isolate myself from the noise, but also to make my methodology as simple as possible. And I find that people often drift to the opposite extent of they try and make it as complex as possible. To sort of use the somewhat uh, apocryphal story, uh, it is said that NASA once boasted, <clears throat> pardon me, that they had spent a fortune working on a pen that worked in space. And the Russians said to them, why don't you just use a pencil? <laughs> and and I, I tend to run my life like that. I tend to try and make it as simple as humanly possible because the drift towards complexity in all things tends to bugger things up. They tend to go wrong. Models tend to collapse when they become exceedingly complex. Mm. Trading models collapse when they become exceedingly complex because the operator or the driver 
can't drive them. They just become too hard. And every field you sort of go in that requires high performance will try as much as possible to work to simple algorithms. Uh, the medical profession is a case in point. If you do a first aid course with St John's Ambulance over a weekend, you are taught Dr ABC. That's it. That's your little mnemonic. If you have a heart attack playing football and the ambulance turns up, guess what they do? They don't need to do the danger response, but they do the ABC. Mm-hmm. And when they get you to hospital, to the emergency room, guess what they do? The ABC. And when they wheel you off to intensive care, guess what they do? Well, they maintain the ABC again. And so it is this simple mnemonic that carries through and carries so much information, but it is so simple and anyone can remember it. Mm. And I try and aim to make my trading as simple as possible. The fewer decisions I have to make, the, the less amount of information I have to manage, the easier it is for me. And I'm always intrigued when I, I listen to people or I hear interviews and people go, well, I scanned 15,000 stocks a day. Bloody hell, how do you do that? Even with a machine. If you've got a knockout rate of 90%, there's still 1,500 stocks left over. If it's 95%, 750. How the hell do you manage that? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm always intrigued by people who make these sort of, look, I, I won't say grandiose claims because that, that's downplaying what they do, but um, it, it's almost a badge of honour that they have. I, I do so much in a day, therefore I'm so busy Therefore, I must be important. Therefore, I must make money. Mm. One does not follow the other at all. Yeah, that that really re- what you just said there reminds me of um, this term Nassim uh, or Nicholas Taleb came up with. It's called yes. neomania, where everyone goes for yes. the newest gadget to do said thing. That if if you actually look at it, most technology that was built uh, for the last couple thousand years has has wide-ranging application because it's it's worked. Um, and that yes. doesn't make you a Luddite. It just means that, you know, there are things that will, like you said, with the pencil as opposed to that pen. Like why do you have to have a pen when you can just use a pencil? Um, and yes, that's why yes. I've always loved Buffett because it's like, okay, what do you understand? What's your circle of competence? Does it have these three things? Is there free cash flow? Is the industry good? Is the CEO not an, not an idiot, um, and are they reinvesting money to grow the business? And, and it's as simple as that, and, and it makes it very, very specific for finding companies. So often when I'm screening it, I might find eight companies. I think in my own portfolio now, I probably hold about three stocks. That's about it. Yes. And, and I think that's, that's the way to go. It, when you look at whether it's screening or looking for opportunities today, are there key principles in particular that you use, something similar to that? I, I Because I trade across several different dimensions, mm. it's probably mentioning that, that they are split so that with my shorter-term systems, it trades a very, very, very small basket of uh, indices and commodities. And it, it's, it's a list that is getting smaller over time. And it's getting smaller over time because I get better and better data over the years as to where the profitability comes from. Mm. But it's it's also that 
many instruments now. We've had this. One of the, one of the intriguing things about globalization is that particularly indices have moved to very high correlations. For example, I know people who will trade a dozen European indices, and my response is why. When you overlay them all over the top of one another, particularly the FTSE Euros, Eurostox 50, DAX, uh, the CAC in France, they kind of look the same. Mm. And, and whilst that, that's a simplistic way of looking at correlation, when you map their returns, the, ret- the correlation returns is very, very high. Why have four when you can have one? And so I go through this process every now and again of culling things out bit by bit. And I, I'm a fan of the fact, much like you said, and it, it is in many ways sort of a, a, a distillation of, you know, some of the things you would hear Warren Buffett say, and that is you've only really got a limited number of good ideas. And if you've got a good idea, then that's your good idea. <laughs> you can't create a good idea out of thin air. If it's not there, it's not there. So you just move on and do something else. And it's, it's very, very hard to convince people that it's not the quantity of the trading that is important. It's the quality. How much bang do you get for your effort? Because I think what catches a lot of people is that they think it's a job. So therefore, if I do more, I make more. Well, no, actually, because that's not what the literature says. And that's what experience will tell you. The more you trade, the less you make. Strangely enough, even in short-term systems, and people are staggered. I have a system that trades four hourly data blocks, and people are staggered at how few trades it takes. Hmm. It's designed to take few trades. It's not designed to shotgun the market and just splatter it and go, well, you know, I've got a bag of mixed lollies. I'll see how we go. And so it's, it's difficult to convince people of that. Again, I think it's this thing that people bring with them, you know, baggage from their previous life. I have a job that paid me X. If I did 2X, then I earned twice as much. So they they bring that to the markets. And that's not actually true. Markets are very, very different. You don't get paid on turnover. You actually get paid largely on the quality of your ideas and the management of that idea. Any idiot can buy a stock or a commodity. It's what you do with it once you've bought it that is important. Mm. You you mentioned something earlier, and I think this is a crucial aspect to finding quality, is delayed gratification. I guess I'm curious as to how, because this is saying that um, uh, as a naturally extroverted individual uh, in the age of social media, I've, I've struggled with over the years, but now, yes. particularly yeah. recently, I have... I have really emphasized like not using my phone as as much as possible and just at honing in on delaying that gratification because there's multiple studies that will show that the person that can delay gratification is more likely to do quality work and therefore in the long run have a more successful or enjoyable career in whatever they're doing. So I, I guess I'm curious as to how you do that in your own life. Yeah, and I think there's a few things that sort of coalesce. The first is I'm a great fan of the pause before you do anything. And it's I learned several things being a bouncer. 
Uh, one is people are fascinating and they run their lives in a completely different way to the way I do. <laughs> Uh, some people are not really people, which is intriguing. But I learned from there's an enormous amount of overlap between the psychology of working with people in stressful situations and markets. And I used to watch, I, I used to work with it, the archetypal Islander, Easter Island statue. You know, this would be the bloke who'd be nine foot tall and built like a phone box. And their approach to conflict was to make it worse in that they were seriously amped up and they would just roar into confrontation. And I looked at that and sort of with an experimental eye and went, well, what happens if I just walk up to someone, take a deep breath and say, okay, mate, what seems to be the problem? What's going on? Don't be silly. And lo and behold, guess what happened? The sting went out of people. Yeah. The same the same is true with markets. I, I watch new traders and they they they'll see a signal that may or may not be there, it may be an artifact of their imagination, and they will get amped up and just roar into it. I'm I'm an enormous fan of the pause. That is just taking a deep breath, going away, sitting down, thinking about it, doing something else, and then coming back. But I think one of the problems, and I I don't know whether this is, and I'll be interested in your feedback in this from a different generation, where the fear of missing out has become much worse over the years, uh, particularly with the continual stimulation that people get now that they might be missing out. Mm. People have this sort of FOMO where they think, if I don't take this one trade now, then what will happen is Every exchange in the world will shut and this one trade that I could have had will go from 15 cents to $450 million and I'll, I'll have missed out completely for the rest of my life. And whilst that seems like an exaggeration, I think that's the emotional pattern and the mental model they operate to subconsciously. Mm. feel they have to roar into things. I must do this right now, otherwise there'll never be another trade ever again. And allied with that is the notion that I've always believed in being 1% calmer than everybody around me, which also means being 1% calmer than the market, which also means that when you see mania, when you see people racing into things, you can just, again, take a deep breath, engage the pause, be calmer than other people, and make a rational decision about it. And I think that what happens is that because humans are basically animals and we have programming that is left over from our early ancestors, we haven't quite yet learnt how to deal with that programming. And one of the problems with markets is that it exacerbates all the anxieties we have. It has this remarkable ability to hit every hot button we possess and it's intriguing the way it can do it. But when you think about it, all that's occurring is that your own insecurities, your own difficulties, your own anxieties are simply being played back to you. And if you're a short-term trader, they're played back to you on very, very, very short timeframes. Mm. I, th I think you, uh, you've definitely hit on something there. I think in our generation, you know, there's a series on Netflix called Black Mirror, and I feel like... Yes. The phone really is a black mirror to what is 
is already happening in our lives. You know, like I, I dealt with some pretty severe anxiety years ago and it came back to a head recently where I actually properly dealt with it. And I just think that you're definitely right about markets, but I think things like social media, they are mapped onto certain elements of our brain that that inherently make us anxious and want to check. I mean, even the phone is a device in and of itself. You know, like I can actually feel myself when I remove the phone from the room that I'm in, I can feel sort of some sort of tension going down, if that makes sense. Mm. So I, I just think, I think it is definitely worse on this generation. However, I think maybe with the advent of any new technology that it's going to be worse on that generation, but over time they learn to deal with it um, in whatever way possible. And we're sort of in the midst of that right now. Yeah. My take on it as someone who's slightly older is that people are trying to work out where the device sits within their life and what the device actually does and can or can't do. And two things that I've come across in parallel. One is a study out of Melbourne University, which has looked at rates of depression within their first year students. And they find that they're historically much, much higher than they used to be. The only thing they can track it back to is social media. And in part, the 24-hour news cycle, and in part, the fact that social media and the algorithms that run it are capable of constructing these very, very powerful echo chambers. So if you're someone who is naturally anxious about the state of the world, and you, for example, let's say you Google uh, fires in the Amazon, then guess what the next things you're going to be shown are? You follow those, you're shown more of the same thing. All of a sudden, your mental map of the world is not really reflective of reality, but reflective of this very hyped up and amped up representation of your worst fears. Mm. And uh, I, I caught up with someone yesterday and they were saying that their daughter is about to next year, the private schools in Melbourne will often send their students away into the country for a year and no phone, no computers. And my question is I would be intrigued to see what the level of anxiety of teenagers was, not from being away from home, but being away from their support device. Yeah, that would be fascinating. That would be absolutely... Because the phone tells them who they are. And it, it gives them a false model of who they think they should be. And so without that, I would be intrigued to see how they go. And I would be, I'd be intrigued to do some baseline work on them before they went and when they came back. Because I, I think there's a PhD in there for someone who is curious enough and can get permission from schools to sort of test and electrocute their children. <laughs> which is what we used to do. Yeah. And just see how they go. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because I was literally watching a few talks from a gentleman named Jonathan Haidt recently and he, he spoke exactly about this. He's based in America though. He came out here recently mm. and he was he he's done a lot of the studies with Harvard over there just to show the mapping of social media onto onto young people's lives and how it starts to affect their anxiety. And particularly yes. young girls. 
Like the self-harm yes. levels in young girls has risen dramatically. Which is a terrible thing. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't actually ever ask you, how did you even get into trading? Oh, that's a long and, and tortuous story. <laughs> uh, the Short Reader's Digest version is I was in academia and I had friends who had gone through a different strain and I had a, I had a moment. I was walking across from... Uh, Having, having given a chute, and I was walking across the quad at uni, and I banged into someone I went to school with and who I went through first year with, who I hadn't seen for years. And I said, okay, where have you been? And he said, look, I've just been in New York for a year. And I said, really? How would you manage that? And he said, well, I, you know, the, the entire sort of research academia thing just didn't do it for me, so I sw- switched to economics. And I said, really? So who are you working for? And he was working for one of the foreign merchant banks that made its appearance here in Australia in the early 1980s. And I said, so what are you doing next? And he said, look, they're just shipping me off to London for probably six months to a year. And I said, okay, important question. How much do they bloody pay you? And he told me. And I thought, I was smarter than you at school. I was smarter than you at uni. And you make nearly seven times what I make putting up with students. What the hell? And I'd, I'd started to be fascinated by markets as a problem anyway because I had other friends who were involved and a girlfriend at the time who was involved. And I thought, this is really interesting. How do I solve this as a problem? How, how do I learn about trading? And I made one of the, look, in, in the pantheon of human errors, uh, this is probably up there with, you know, the top five, such as, you know, don't get involved in a land war in Asia and never invade Russia in the winter. Uh, <laughs> I thought stockbrokers actually knew something about trading. And so I talked my way into uh, a stockbroking firm, largely on the strength of uh, some people I knew, but also the fact they were fascinated by the fact that the calculator I used didn't have an equals button. And they thought that was some form of black magic, that my old square blocky uh, Hewlett-Packard that looked like a block of chocolate could do these magical things, particularly with the advent of derivatives. Uh, they thought, well, uh, we struggle to work a ruler. You seem to know what you're doing. And so my sort of assumption that stockbrokers knew anything about trading was quickly disavowed when I realised that the person sitting opposite me had until a little while earlier been selling shoes and the person next to me had been selling carpet. Uh, which was which was really intriguing, and so that was quickly quickly knocked out of me, and so it was a matter of learning on the job, just working things out, treating it like a problem, and two thing one one thing happened in particular that buggered my trading. One was one of the first serious trades I took uh, had an order of magnitude increase. And I thought that was down to my natural genius when it wasn't because the 1980s bull market was just kicking off and everything rises on a floating tide. Mm. That caused me difficulty for about five years until I worked that out of the system. In in some ways, my emotions for new traders now are somewhat mixed. I feel sorry for them in that they're bombarded by information and they're bombarded largely by shit. There is so much rubbish out there. But by the same token, there is so much 
quality information. For example, you, you mentioned Talib uh, a few moments ago, who I find to be a fascinating character. He's a bit of a character, that's for sure. His, 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 his Twitter feed is somewhat brutal. Uh, he's, he's, he's quite savage with people he doesn't like or he, he feels have uh, done him wrong. But when you listen to him sit down and speak, it's a different character. And, for example, you have access to things like the book The Black Swan. And The Black Swan is an excellent trading book in that it teaches you to, or it, it brings to the surface the notion that you can't be fooled by coincidence and that it's often difficult to separate skill and luck. So people now have access to these things. Uh, back in my day, if you, if you ordered a book from the back of a magazine, there was a 90% chance that it would actually end up in Austria rather than Australia because that's just the way the Americans saw the world. Uh, and you'd have to go, no, 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 Paul Hogan, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, send it to the bottom of the planet, not to the middle of Europe. <laughs> uh, and so in some ways it's much easier for people now, but in some ways it's much, much, much harder. Yeah. But also you, you raise something um, that I find interesting, like but the point about the guy selling carpet just reminds me of um, – when so my dad's from Cyprus and uh, yes. we're over in Turkey and uh, we got roped into one of those carpet uh, sales rooms and the guy was <sighs> like the Turkish blonde version of Warwick Kappa. He had a, the <sighs> mullet and everything, um, but That'd be this sensational. was sensational. That was only six years ago, and so he was he was quite the character. It just reminds me of that for for whatever reason. But something I've come across recently is in in competitive industries it. I find it's actually easy to stand out because my, my view is when there's low barriers to entry, you get a lot of crap, as you mentioned, that yeah. enters enters into it. So if you can come from a rational perspective and a you know a place where you can work in the art of the pause, then you can do quite well, which is I think maybe something that you may have realized um, eventually over time. But it's interesting that you talk about that trade because I feel like I was very, very lucky. In my first 18 months to a year of trading, I had I basically wiped myself out. All of all the savings that I had at uni, which were it wasn't much, it was four or five thousand dollars, but to me yeah. it would be like the you know, it's today it'd be it'd be like the equivalent of losing like fifty to a hundred grand in one yeah. go. So it's it's very interesting. I, I guess I'm curious then as to how did you go from beginning at the brokering firm where you were selling, you know, next to a guy who sold carpet with your magic yeah. calculator yes. to starting the trading gate? There were, there were a few steps in between, a few of which actually involved retirement. I was lucky enough to be able to retire from the industry, but retirement's a very dull thing. Uh I'm not entirely certain as to why people sort of eulogise how important or how wonderful yeah, retirement is. And I, I, just, I just don't get it. Because the, the archetypal sort of piss take you have is the old bloke in his beige Volvo with his white hat on going to bowls. <laughs> and you think, don't be stupid. Why would I want to do that? Like that's, that's just insane. And so it was, a, it was a matter of I, I've always liked doing things by myself, so trading suits me to a T. Uh, I'm an introvert by nature, so I tend to flourish in isolation. 
So when I'm left alone, I actually do my best work. And I'm quite comfortable being left alone. I don't, it doesn't concern me. I don't get anxious. It's, I'm just not one of those people. And so it was, I spent numerous years by myself and just doing my own thing, doing a bit of consulting. I actually did, at, at one stage, I was doing an awful lot of expert witness work for derivatives trading cases. And it was at a time when these magic schemes for selling options were appearing. You know, just rent shares and rent the options out and you can never lose money. So they say before they come to take your house off you. And so I did that for numerous years. It was fascinating because they were fascinating problems to solve, trying to work out what the hell these advisors had been doing. And once you worked it out, you had a eureka moment. But it was also fascinating dealing with the legal profession who had no quantitative skills whatsoever. Uh, they were thick as two planks when it came to actually understanding anything vaguely quantitative or mechanistic. And it was intriguing sitting over breakfast going, so they're paying you $15,000 a day to be an idiot. Yes, but I'm an articulate idiot. Yeah, I can see that, but you're still an idiot. Yes, and that was an intriguing adventure for many years, but I eventually got sick of it because I, I simply got sick of the number and sick of the fact that nothing was being done to stop these magic schemes being promoted, which was uh, irritating because it, it many of them caused people to lose virtually everything they had, including their own home. Mm. So I uh, did that, wrote a few books, uh, spent a lot of time making fun of brokers, lecturing to them at PSX and SFE without them actually understanding I was making fun of them, and was happily minding my own business uh, when I ran into Louise, and over time we began to do more and more things together. And the business, the trading game, uh, grew out of that. And so it's, it's not being retired, but it has all the advantages of being retired. <laughs> she was very good with her notes on you, by the way. Um... <laughs> she, is, she is the world's best note taker. She is. She really is. Like, I, I didn't – like, I just wanted her – you know, because I didn't want to give her too much work, but the notes she gave me was amazing. It's, it's uh, a remarkable, it's a remarkable skill she has. I'm yeah. not certain how she does it. <laughs> well, one of the things she said that uh, that you taught or she's learnt from you is to to not suffer the heads lightly, which I quite liked, um, and to be a little bit more direct with the way that she handles people or, the, or what she wants in a situation. I guess it it, ha it made me curious. Like, what have you learnt? working with Louise over the years in, you know, talking trading and building the trading game as well? In, in, in many ways, we've had a, not a reversal of roles, but some people say I'm mellower than I used to be. They clearly haven't seen me when I'm not. <laughs> and she's become much more direct. I, I operate under very, very simple maxims. And that is, I'm a believer in the world's smallest Bible. The world's smallest Bible has one page, one verse. Don't be a kid. If you, if you breach that verse, then you're really going to annoy me. And one of the things that I've always had is I've never had a problem telling someone when I think they're being a kid. 
Now, now, as, as one of my teachers once wrote in one of my reports as I was leaving school, uh, they literally said it's a good thing for Tate that they stuck a size 10 mouth and a size 10 body because I will tell you when I'm annoyed and I, I let it be known uh, uh, because life, life is too short to suffer fools. And oh, yeah. I think the, the unfortunate thing is many people do much to their own stress and their own detriment. And I, I see it in people I know, and it's, it's enormously stressful for them. And it is very dispiriting, and it's very emotionally draining for them. It, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, I've learned the hard way that you really can become the average of the five people around you. And you've, you've got to surround yourself with the right people. And as soon as someone displays any sort of behavior that's not so much negative, but not the behavior you want, then I'm of the opinion that you need to cut them out immediately. Oh, look, this, this is a, a conflict Louise and I have in that I'll often talk to, you know, you'll often be talking to a married couple and one will have aims, ambitions and a drive to do something that is carefully laid out, carefully explained, all the risks are looked at, they're taken care of, and the other is just not on board. They can't see the dream. And my, my view quite harshly is that if someone can't see the dream, if someone's not travelling along with you, then you probably need to swap partners. Yeah. And, and she, she finds that a, a little bit distressing. But, and whilst you don't want to have this terrible absolutism of well, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, you do actually want to surround yourself with people who are positive in their tone and intent and who only actually want the best for you. Mm. One of the things that was distressing and annoying about the finance industry was nobody wanted the best for you. Everybody actually wanted you to fail. So that there is no, there was no culture of we're all moving forward together as an entity and we are all improving one another. It was very much, let's hope this person falls over. And I think, unfortunately in life, that situations and people like that are much more common than uh, we give credit to. I think um, another thing you, you mentioned just then about Louise Um which I reckon she, is the reason why she feels that way is she often sees the best in people. So, yes. <laughs> in, in a way, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It um, is. But, look, we, yeah, we, we have this, not argument, but I say, look, I assume the worst in people. And if I don't get the worst, I'm pleasantly surprised. You assume the best in people, and when you don't get it, you're disappointed. Hmm. Which technology is superior? I think from my perspective, mine is. But from her perspective and the way she views the world, hers is. And I think it is this, I think it's an important point about life is this notion of work from presumption of best intentions. Because I, I actually think, and we come back to this notion of social media, if you were to look around social media today and look around at the state of the world, you have the world's most powerful nation run by a man-baby who was a child who, you know, is intellectually incapable of doing his shoes up uh, and has all the emotional maturity of a two-year-old. You have the United Kingdom struggling with Brexit now being run by 
what could loosely be described as an inbred fop. And if you were to go by that and have that fed back to you constantly over and over and over again, along with all the other crap that goes on in the world, you would assume that everybody is useless or slash everybody is evil. And I don't actually think that's true. I think that the majority of people are simply trying to make the best of what they can with what they've got. They yeah. just get through the day like everyone else. And I would even say this of, uh, you know, one, one of the intriguing things about going to America is it is such a paradox. As a country, it is what? 320 million kids in one spot. Individually, they are the politest, nicest people I've ever met outside of the Japanese. Now, granted that, that there are undoubtedly exceptions to that, but again, they're just trying to get through the day. So it, it, we come back to this assumption of best intentions. What, what, what are the best intentions? And the, the thing is, it comes back to, we can even extend it to trading with metaphors. People have terrible metaphors about trading. There are the old Rothschilds quote about buying when there is blood in the sea. It's not war. It's a game where you move numbers around a screen. Build a proper metaphor for the market that says, it's a bit like surfing. Some days will be really, really good. Every way I arrive will end. Some will be extraordinary ones that I will film and put on YouTube and show off to my mates. Sometimes I will get dumped on my head and occasionally one of my mates will take the out of me by yelling shark and touching my foot. But it's a, it's, it's a metaphor that you can cope with because it has no evil intent. If you think that, you know, trading is war, then what's the outcome of that? There is no outcome other than destruction. Mm. You, you've, uh, you've seen it all, I think, um, at the trading game um, and talking trading. I think one of the notes that Louise passed on to me was that you guys once had a client who used a... They had, I think it was one average true range stop and they were surprised that they got stopped out 31 times in a row yes. at a yes. loss. I guess I'm curious then, thinking about the time that you've coached people, what is the most interesting observation over that time or, or what seems most obvious to you but not to others? Well, one of the things that is intriguing as an observation is that everybody makes the same mistakes. There are no new mistakes. Granted, there are orders of magnitude of mistake, but people by and large, as a macro description, make the same mistakes. They are driven by their emotions. They're illogical. They're fearful. Uh, it's the usual mistakes everyone makes of killing positions early, not letting winning positions run, not taking advantage of winning positions, and sometimes using the market as an excuse not to trade at all. Uh, I came across uh, one of our clients many, many years ago at the opera, and he's a mathematician by training. Mathematicians by training have to be correct. That's the nature of their job. And so I said, how's the trading going? He said, look, I'm almost ready to place my first trade. <laughs> Ten years later, he still hasn't because he cannot conceive of the notion of being wrong. And so the mistakes people make are all the same. They're all, uh, there's no unique mistakes. Granted, some are spectacular, like some are remarkable, but they're, they're largely 
all the same. So people, by and large, aren't surprising. Sometimes I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm sort of surprised. We were reviewing a trading plan for someone sometime last year, and it was a very, very good plan. It was logical, coherent. It was direct. And when I looked at the results, the results in no way matched the trading plan, nor did they match the individual, which was surprising because one of the most important things is to match trading system to individual. So you play your own game. Once you play your own game, things become more natural. They become easier. And when I began to, when I broke down the trade log, the trades were the exact opposite of what the trading plan said, literally. So if the trading plan said, when A, B and C happens, go long, A, B and C would happen and they would go short. And I thought, well, that's new. I haven't seen it to that degree before. I've seen people who, you know, take trades that aren't there or who go on signals that are false. But I've never seen one where the person did the exact opposite. Where they, did they have the plan upside down or what the hell happened? Uh, turned out to be a function of the individual. Uh, that was just, uh, I should preface it by saying this individual believes that you can bend spoons psychically. So that sort of says it all. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like though that what you should be looking for is managing that downside. If if state mistakes are similar all the time, then you need to be thinking about those downside potentials. Um, oh, and that's, that's the biggest thing that I've learned trading. It is. One, one of the things that is difficult to convey to people is that you make no money on entry. You, you don't make a cent. All you've done is that's the equivalent of being at the grand final and the referee has blown their whistle to start the game. The game's now started. It's how you manage the game as it goes along that will determine whether you're successful or not. And it's very difficult to convince people of that because they get they get so hooked up on entry and they, they get this laser-like focus that just rivets them to the spot and they ignore all the management issues. And all the management issues are based around managing that downside. The downside is the most important thing because if you've got no money, you can't play. Granted, there are CFD providers who allow people to open accounts using a credit card, which is an insane idea, yeah. but, and, but which will hopefully be brought to an end shortly. But there's, there's a multitude of equations that govern finance, some of which incorrectly have won people Nobel Prizes uh, when they shouldn't have. But there is one that is really, really important. And in simple terms, it simply says, if you lose 10% of your account, making 10% on what you've got left will not get you back to your point of origin. You will need 11.1. If you lose 11.1, you need 15. Lose 15, you need 20. Lose 20, you need 25. Lose 25, you need 50. Lose 50, you need 100. The game's over before then anyway. Mm. So if you can't hang on to the money you've got, then you are screwed. And, and this is the thing. You need to be able to walk away from positions and say, I've got that wrong. I will just walk away now. And I'm going to walk away with most of my pot intact and so I can play again. 
because there's a, there's a little harsh thing in, in finance and trading. The longer you survive, the more you make. The more you make, the longer you survive. The longer you survive, the more you make. Mm. And so you have this terribly harsh feedback loop that catches people out because I think what happens is people get caught in this, in some way, a lottery mentality. The trading is a lottery. You just need the one big winner. You just need to buy Bitcoin at 17 cents and sell it at $25,000. Because that happens all the time. Well, no, it doesn't actually. Uh, it just the world doesn't work that way. Trading is this sort of profession whereby you move throughout the year trying not to go broke, whilst you wait for the collection of winners, the outliers, that will render the account profitable. And if you look at anybody's sort of distribution of returns who's successful, you, you'll see a common theme, a common pattern. You'll see lots of very small losses. None of them are catastrophic. None of them wipe the account out. None of them take a sizable chunk out of the account. You'll see a few trades that are mediocre that sort of get going and then stop and you go, oh, bugger. Okay, I've walked away with that, having just paid for costs. And then you'll see a handful that are explosive. You know, they're the archetypal stocks like Aristocrat where the run starts at a dollar and goes to 15 or 20. And it does so in this beautiful trend that starts on the bottom left hand and finishes at the top right. And you're involved all the way. And that's the way the business works, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Situations where all my money, particularly for the short-term trading system, which is very leveraged, comes from two trades. And it's, it's difficult to convince people of that. And I understand it is immensely wearing. Trading is a very wearing profession because... If you're trading short term, you're being told you're wrong an awful lot and you're being told you're wrong very, very quickly. And for people who perhaps haven't dealt with their own demons or who are perhaps insecure in what they're doing, that can be immensely wearing and very, very taxing on the soul. Yeah, there is one rule there that is so important and that is uh, the number one rule and that is don't lose capital. And I think... um, you know, the, the game, people often forget the game is capitalism. Um, those who accrue capital in the longest term yes. win. And it's as simple as that. It's just a, it's just a matter of time. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, that's that wonderful Buffettism. Yeah. Rule one, lose money. Rule two, see rule one. <laughs> and, and it's true. He, he also has one. And Buffett and I see the world in fundamentally different ways, but he, he's obviously immensely successful. And he has some wonderful quotes. And what I saw the other day was, uh, when you're thinking about investing in a business, invest in a business that could be run by an idiot, because sooner or later it will be. Yeah. And I thought, that's pretty true, actually. <laughs> it's, it, it is very true. I, I've, I've always loved that. You want to go with, with the, the, the tailwind, not the headwind. Basically, yes. Yeah. And that, that's all that, when, when you look at trading, investing, whatever you want to call it, the trick is to look for the commonalities, not the difference. And fundamental people want to buy a business. Sometimes they get caught by their own narrative, which is problematic. But what they want to see is that business translated into the rising share price. All trend followers like me want to see is the rising share price. So we want to see the same thing. Mm. Uh, we, we, 
I mean, there is this old saying, all roads lead to Mecca, which, which is partially true. We're all aiming for the same thing. We take a slightly different road, but there are probably more commonalities than differences, despite the fact that people like to play up the differences because they're the dramatic talking points. I mean, the, the mere fact that Buffett, as a fundamentalist, says, rule one, don't lose money, well, that's our rule one. And the unfortunate thing is that most people forget what rule one is on both sides of the fence. Yeah. They're always forgetting. Well, look, we're, we're about to crack an hour. I've got to ask we you some, uh, some rapid-fire questions to finish us off. Fire away. Um, best purchase under $200? Best purchase under $200? Ooh, that's a hard one. Mm, I have to think. <laughs> it, it, it is pro- this is going to sound silly. It's probably my current skipping rope. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, my... Uh, most answers are something so simple. Um, it's probably my current skipping rope. Yeah. Do love a good skipping rope. I think I've had mine for about five years now. They're brilliant things. You can take They're them anywhere hard. in the world and uh, yeah. they'll tire you out. And good ones are hard to find. And yeah. when you would one, it's like a good pair of shoes. If you had to gift one book to the audience uh, for Christmas this year, what would it be and why? It would probably be Manias, Crashes and Panics by Kindleberger. Uh-huh. It looks at the emotions of markets. It looks at the mistakes people make. It looks at the fact that history with booms and busts repeats itself and will always repeat itself and never, ever, ever will it be any different. Yeah, I, I think that is a brilliant book. I've read it. Um, mm. It's super fascinating. You learn about guys like... Um, Isaac Newton, how he lost. Yes. Um, what was that bubble that he invested in? Like the South Sea bubble. He, South he lost, Sea bubble. Yeah. He lost. He lost sixty. I think it's sixty-seven thousand pounds. Yeah, back then. To put that into context, uh, Horatio Nelson, his flagship at Trafalgar, the Victory, cost I think twenty thousand pounds to build. Wow. Yeah, it was a it was a lot of money. A lot it a lot of money. Staggering sum of money. Look, Chris, this has been a fascinating chat. We've loved having you on and, um, you know, where could people find you on the interwebs? Where's the best place? The best place to find me is at traininggame.com.au. You can register for our trading plan template where we walk you through what should be in a trading plan. And you can also touch base with me at my blog there and keep up with my somewhat eccentric and probably sometimes demented ramblings. (laughs) Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Not a problem, Jordan. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.